So I'm delighted to be joined today by Emma Jones and Simon Mead to discuss their work in the new issue of The Lancet Neurology. Uh, perhaps you'd like to start to briefly introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Emma and I'm one of the PhD students in Simon Mead's group at the MRC Prion Unit at UCL. Hi, I'm Simon Mead. I'm a neurologist. I work at the National Prion Clinic at UCLH and I'm Deputy Director of the Institute of Prion Diseases um, and MRC Prion Unit at UCL, where I lead the um, Human Genetics Programme, which has been responsible for this GWAS. Fantastic. Well, thank you both so much for joining me today. Uh, we're here to talk about your recent work, obviously, published in The Lancet Neurology. So perhaps, um, Simon, you could kick us off by just telling us what SCJD is and why it's so important to study. CJD stands for Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which is a clinico-pathological phenotype described in the early 20th century. Uh, we now know this to be a clinically heterogeneous disorder, but most commonly neurologists see this as a rapidly progressive dementia, but one that's associated with neurological features like myoclonus, cerebellar ataxia, higher order visual processing defects, and pyramidal and extrapyramidal motor signs. It, you know, it's remarkably fast for a dementia. Typically, patients survive only around four to six months. But I did mention heterogeneity. I mean, there are some patients that survive only a few weeks with this, this disorder from start to finish. And we frequently see cases that survive longer than a year, even two or three years or more. Um, it typically affects older people with a, a mean onset in the late 60s. Um, but cases are seen in the 20s, early middle age, up to the extremes of old age. The term sporadic means that there's no obvious cause. And this is to differentiate CJD from other forms of uh, prion disease, such as inherited prion disease, which is autosomal dominant caused by mutations in PRMP, often much slower in clinical course, but can look just like CJD. And then acquired forms of prion disease that are quite notorious through historical medical procedures or contaminated neurosurgical instruments that prions have been transmitted. Um, and of course, um, the transmission of bovine spongiform encephalopathy to human as variant CJD, of course, everyone will be familiar with. So SCJD or sporadic CJD is the most common form of human prion disease. And, and as it's the most common form, that's really the only one, the only type of human prion disease that would be tractable to study in large scale um, genetic projects like this one. I, I should say something about prions. So it's the most common form of human prion disease. Prions are proteinaceous infectious agents and they behave like other pathogens. They can evade host immune responses, they can evolve in a host, they can spread, and they're thought to comprise only of, or predominantly of, uh, an abnormally folded and multimeric assembly of prion protein uh, without nucleic acid. Uh, so unlike other uh, pathogens, uh, which are typically living things, um, uh, prions bind the normal prion protein that we all make. They template its structure um, and, and thus form more abnormal prion protein uh, in a growing um, misfolded multimer. Uh, and that's uh, how the disease entity propagates. Why should we be interested in sporadic CGD? Well, I think I would pinpoint four main reasons. The mechanism is biologically fascinating and fundamental, and it's it's been recognized 
by the scientific community, two Nobel Prizes have been awarded to Colton Gatisek, who first showed that Kuru was transmissible, and Stanley Prusner that coined the term prion by purifying a proteinaceous infectious agent. In itself, it's it's perceived to be a highly rare disease, but it's not quite so rare as, as people commonly think. I think the myth comes from the one in a million, one per million, but of course it's one per million per year that leads to a lifetime risk of around one in 4,000 to one in 5,000 deaths. And so in itself, the disease I think is worth studying simply because of its, its incidence. Um, it causes public health crises. Of course, people are familiar with, with BSE. That was probably the biggest public health crisis to face the UK prior to this year, of course. And, and there are still things to watch. You know, there are very long incubation times associated with prion diseases, and there are, there are no reliable tests within the incubation time uh, for the acquired forms. And more recently, it's become increasingly recognized that um, prion diseases are perhaps a paradigm for all of neurodegeneration. And people are increasingly, in other neurodegenerative diseases, use the term uh, prion-like uh, to describe mechanisms. Thank you, Simon. Uh, Emma, turning to the research in, in the issue, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the kind of methodology and findings from the research. As it says in the title, was a genome-wide association study. So genome-wide association studies, or GWAS, have been a particular type of study used increasingly over the last decade to investigate the genetic basis of a huge variety of different diseases and phenotypic traits. These are particularly useful to identify more common genetic variants, which typically have a smaller effect size, which you might be able to identify in other types of study. So broadly speaking, before I get into like nitty gritty of our study, this kind of works by comparing the genetic sequence of people who have your phenotype of interest and those who don't in order to identify particular variants which might differ in frequency between the two populations. So getting on to our study, we collected DNA from over 4,100 individuals with sporadic CJD and gathered genome-wide information using uh, genotyping arrays and then subsequent genetic imputation. And in the end, I think we compared over 6 million variants to those in healthy individuals. And so through this comparison, in the first stage of our study, we identified 41 single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs at three separate genetic loci. So this included the prion gene, which is called PRMP, as well as two new sites in um, surrounding the genes STX6 and GALF-ST1. So these 41 SNPs all had a significantly different frequency in the sporadic CJD cases compared to the controls. However, because we're doing such a massive statistical test, it's important to avoid any false positive results. So we then replicated these findings in a totally new set of sporadic cases. So this was almost 1,100 new cases as well as new controls. And again, these three variants at these three sites were statistically different in their frequency between the two populations. Yeah, this was really exciting because it's the first time a genome-wide significant variant outside of the PRMP locus has been identified for conferring risk for sporadic CJD. Um, so this, just to point out, was particularly in populations of European ancestry. We then went on, after having identified these three sites, to see whether they might also confer risk for other types of human prion disease that Simon mentioned. So we looked at Kuru, variant CJD, and iatrogenic CJD. 
And although the kind of tests we did here were slightly less powerful, it doesn't appear that these variants confer risk for others types of human prion disease. So we think this is a specific effect for the sporadic form of the disease. Then finally, because in a GWAS study, it's not always the nearest gene to your associated site, which is actually driving this effect. We kind of performed both some statistical fine mapping studies, as well as some more functional analysis to try and pinpoint exactly what the kind of mechanism behind these associations might be. And through this, we concluded that at the chromosome one locus, we do think it's the SDX6 gene which is driving this association. And particularly through perhaps modifying the expression of the gene in two brain regions, which are important for the sporadic CJD, which is the chordate and putamen. Unlike um, gal 3 st one we again think that this gene is driving the association at this site, but we think this is more likely to be a coding change in the protein, which is modifying the effect in some way. So through this GWAS study, we've identified these two new sites, which or two new pathways, which have been previously unidentified for sporadic CJD. And this kind of has opened up um, new avenues for investigation. What are some of the limitations that we should bear in mind uh, in this study? Yeah, I think it's definitely important to consider the limitations because for GUS, even though it has definitely proved invaluable over the last decade for identifying unknown genes or pathways associated with diseases, um, I guess, as with any other type of scientific research, there are undoubtedly a few limitations. Firstly, something which I think has proved especially limiting for the prime field in particular is that due to um, the multiple testing burden. So as I mentioned, we were comparing over 6 million variants. So there's this is a massive statistical test. And so the sample sizes which are required to achieve statistical power in this kind of study and overcome any false positive results is pretty huge. So as kind of Simon mentioned, compared to other diseases and disorders, uh, Sporadic CJD is relatively rare, so this has been especially challenging to achieve in the past. Therefore, I think this study really was a massive team effort and couldn't have been done without the massive international collaboration that was set up using um, samples from nearly all prion research centres or surveillance centres in populations of European ancestry, allowing us as a international team to gather the largest collection of sporadic CJD DNA today and allowing us to achieve significance in our study. However, other limitations do come after significant results are obtained. So as I mentioned, the sites of association aren't necessarily driven by the nearest gene. So I think it's important to just clarify that even though these genes we think are driving the association, there are a whole load of other genes in the region. However, due to, along with the increasing use of GWAS, there's been an increasing wealth of methods and databases which can allow us to predict the causal genes with greater confidence. And I think that's why we can say with some certainty that it is the SDX6 and GAL3-SD1 genes which are associated with sporadic CJD from our study. One thing that is kind of brought up a lot in terms of GWAS is that the genetic variants identified often do only have small effect sizes and they can therefore also 
only explain a proportion of the heritability of a disease. So I think one of the important things to take from this study is that, or any kind of GWAS study is that it does, even if the genetic variants themselves only have a small impact, it does provide insight into new biological pathways and mechanisms, which you might not have thought to study in the past. So this can subsequently, further research will allow development of potentially novel therapeutics or kind of cures for a disease which might not have been thought of in the past. So what are the kind of next steps for you? What does this mean for future research? As I mentioned, this kind of opens up whole new avenues of research, I reckon. Um, So even though us personally, we've used in our paper more bioinformatic and computational approaches to kind of certify what we think these causal genes are, there is only some kind of confidence that we can have in this without certifying it in more biological and relevant systems. So that's why we think it's now kind of time to turn to the lab to really secure this interpretation. For example, one of the key genes that I'm interested in is STX6 from our GWAS. So although that we think through our computational study that this modifies the risk of sporadic CJD through altering expression levels in the brain, we don't really know what this has to do in terms of the context of the disease. We know that in STX6 encodes syntaxin 6, which is involved in trafficking uh, proteins through our cells. Um, we can come up with a number of different hypotheses as to why this might be involved in prion diseases or what the relationship might be with the prion protein. For example, perhaps syntaxin 6 is involved in formation of this initial prion, which kind of maybe modifying the trafficking of the prion protein throughout the cells and changing the pathway might um, promote in some way this conversion of the cellular prion protein into misfolded disease-associated aggregates, and then this can then propagate throughout the diseased tissue. However, it might also be involved after this step and or alternatively involved after this step and more involved in the seeded aggregation or the trafficking of the disease-associated aggregates around our cells, um, and therefore promoting kind of like the typical prion-like spread throughout the brain. So I could go on. I think you can come up with a list of various hypotheses as to um, what you can investigate. But to answer some of these questions specifically, I am primarily utilising different cell models of prion diseases. Um, which includes, as we investigated in our study, this mouse neuroblastoma cells, which are frequently used as a reporter for mouse prion propagation specifically. Um, However, as we demonstrated in our study, that we don't think that STX6 is involved, especially in this step, at least in this model. So I think now it's important going forward to turn to more biologically relevant systems, perhaps more representative of a human disease. So, for example, one thing we're thinking about doing is using induced pluripotent stem cells. Um, so these are cells derived from humans, which can then be differentiated into a variety of brain cells, which will allow us to kind of modify the STX6 gene and see whether in this more perhaps representative system, it has an impact in either the trafficking of the prion protein or the propagation of prions in these cells. Um, yeah, so there's huge, a variety of experiments that could be done, both 
in SDX6 as well as in GAL3ST1 or looking at combination of both. Um, but yeah, this has really opened up new avenues which kind of have infinite possibilities. Thank you, Emma, uh, for that. Uh, Simon, perhaps looking more broadly, where's the kind of future of this sort of research going? What, what, does, what does research and treatment look like in, in the years from now? Thank you, Gavin. Yeah, well, uh, genetically uh, going forward, we are doing the obvious things that you would expect. We're, we're using exome and genome sequencing to see whether we can find variants that are rare, but strong risk factors. And we're also looking at genetic determinants of clinical phenotype in CJD, such as how long people survive with the disorder and, and the age that they get it. And um, so that's ongoing work as well as, you know, in the collaboration, there are others that have ideas that they'll be able to take forward themselves as well. It's not just something that's completely driven by us in, in London. Um, more generally, in terms of therapeutics, I don't think this work really transforms our attitude about what is the therapeutic target in, in CJD. It's the prion protein. I think that is totally established and more strongly established, I think, than in other neurodegenerative diseases. It is accepted that there is a gain of function mechanism here. I mean, we're not completely sure yet which abnormal forms of PLP are toxic, but we're pretty sure that it is some abnormal form of PLP, even if it isn't exactly the same as a prion. And we think that it, it may well bind the normal form of PLP to exert its toxicity. So that's an active area of research, but the, the idea therapeutically is not to target the toxic or the propagating form. Um, and we can't target the prion form because we don't, well, we can't target it well because we don't know its atomic structure yet. And that's probably one of the biggest unknowns in the field. Uh, but we do know that that atomic structure is likely to be variable between different prion strains. And we know that through changing strains predominance in tissues, uh, prion infection can evade therapeutics. And, and that's a major caveat to targeting the abnormal form. So the idea is with therapeutics that we, we target the normal form of PLP. So we think that loss of PLP is protective. Um, it's in, largely inconsequential for animals. Knockout animals seem to be relatively healthy until old age when they get a relatively mild demyelinating neuropathy and some other um, relatively modest changes. It certainly are healthy and fertile. So the idea is to diminish PLP expression or chaperone PLP by binding with a drug-like um, molecule or an antibody. There have been some concerns about the toxicity of PLP antibodies that have impacted on development, but this is controversial. Certainly, we don't find um, a great deal of toxicity with an antibody that we've introduced into the clinic between 2018 and 2019. We treated six patients with CJD with, um, intravenously with a monoclonal antibody called PRM100, and we were encouraged by those findings and are looking to take that forward. But there's also um, a company called Ionis that have developed a prion protein gene targeting antisense oligonucleotide, and they're also hoping to move into clinical trials. So it's it's quite an exciting time with respect to prion disease therapeutics at the moment. Finally, then, that moves us on perfectly to uh, talking about, I guess, the implications of this prion model. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Kevin. And so, you know, prion diseases have a number of um, distinct um, properties that they display in terms of uh, prion mechanisms. So, you know, most notably, it's transmission of disease. and that, But that can be between humans 
animal to human, human to cells, etc. Um, and and in vitro, you can amplify uh, prions using um, certain molecular techniques um, in the laboratory. Prions also show strain properties. I mentioned in answer to the earlier question, and that's that's through templating of structure from the abnormal form into the normal form, and that's how that's how um, strain properties are heritable. So these properties are variably shared across the entire group of neurodegenerative disorders, and that's what people mean when they talk about prion-like. But it is a bit of a clumsy term because it doesn't really specify which prion mechanism uh, you're referring to. And, and the history here is long. They, you know, it goes back to Colton Gadusek, who I mentioned won the Nobel Prize for showing Kuru was transmissible, who at the NIH lab in the 70s attempted transmissions of many other diseases and was largely unsuccessful. But the, the idea wasn't dropped. Uh, Ross Ridley and Harry Baker took it up with transmissions of amyloid beta pathology to marmosets in the 90s. And, and then more recently, Larry Walker and Matthias Yucca with extensive transmission experiments of Alzheimer's disease pathology in transgenic mice. Um, and, and really the field has, has grown um, dramatically in the last 10 years, particularly Virginia Lee, John Trojanowski, and many others, showing that tauopathies, sinuculinopathies, and TDP43 and FUS all share several properties with prion diseases. Um, our own contribution to this field was in showing that patients that have been exposed to prions through receiving cadaveric human growth hormone um, also appeared um, to show evidence of human-to-human -human transmission of amyloid beta pathology as um, iatrogenic cerebral amyloid angiopathy. And, and subsequently, this work has been extensively replicated around the world, uh, showing that amyloid beta pathology appears to be transmissible as CAA through many of the routes that have transmitted CJD in the past. Um, previously, this lack of human-to-human -human transmission was the key thing that marked out prion diseases from the other neurodegenerative diseases. And I think then recent years have shown that that, that um, boundary is not quite so much of a red line as was previously thought. And you know, what are the implications of this? Well, I think it's mainly for understanding mechanisms and the developments of model systems um, uh, to, to model neurodegenerative diseases in cells and animals. But there are some other implications as well, I think, for safety in laboratory and healthcare settings, which are, are really only started to be looked at. And I, you know, I think compels us to really study this epidemiologically to get firm evidence of whether or not there are additional iatrogenic forms of neurodegenerative diseases. I think that question has not been satisfactorily answered to date. You can read Emma and Simon's work in the new issue of The Lancet Neurology, and you can read it online at thelancet.com. Emma Jones, Simon Mead, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you.